0: verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part, a part, in this first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. For a thousand years. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now. Lord, as we consider this one thousand years of the reign of your people, God, help us. Help us to have minds that understand. Help us to have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that believe. Dear God, help us to live in obedience in light of these wonderful truths Lord, I decrease that you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name me pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. We come now to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation and to these six verses. These six verses, which are widely considered to be the most controversial, and by controversial I mean most debated verses in the whole of the book of Revelation. That's saying a lot, isn't it? Since uh, we have been presented with, um, I think, countless verses whose interpretations are widely debated, today we are presented with the doctrine, or confronted even sometimes with the doctrine of the millennium. The 1,000-year binding of Satan and the 1,000-year reigning of of the saints of God. For some, this may be the very first time that you are even hearing the phrase the millennium in a theological context. You've heard of millennials, that's a completely different. The millennium in a theological context. Faithful Christians hold differing views about this one thousand years that is referred to here in Revelation and its meaning. There are, I think, a number of different variations of this 1,000 years, but there are at least three prominent views. Very briefly, and let me say, very briefly, um, and probably not as thorough as I could be, and I intend not to be, will I give a brief overview of at least two of them. Number one, the premillennial view. Now, to hold and to protect my tongue from going haywire. I'm going to just say pre-mill instead of using the entire millennium. So the first is the pre-mill or pre-millennium view. There are two versions of it. One is the so-called historic view. The historic pre-mill view holds to a belief that resurrected Christians will enjoy 1,000 years of earthly bliss after the return of Christ. And then there will be a great fall when Satan is released. The other is known as the dispensational premillennial view. The dispensational premill view. It believes that a restored Jewish state will reign with the Messiah for a literal 1,000 years. Most of us were raised with this belief. And then there will be a great fall when Satan is released. With this comes the rebuilding of a temple, with this comes the reinstituting of the sacrificial system, all of these things. That's the pre-mill view. The second view is called the post-mill view. Now you can kind of gather from pre-1000 and then post-after-1000. Another view, this other view will be that Christ will return after or just at the end of a thousand years. Most premill believe that the 1,000 years is a symbolic period of time towards the end of the gospel age or church age when Christianity has conquered, in terms of faith, culture, and political authority, all the religions of the world. Post-millennialists believe that the world will become Christianized, as it were. We will be living in a a type of earthly utopia. I'm I'm hoping I'm being fair to these views. And if I'm not, then um, you can correct me afterwards. But I don't intend to give a full um, orbit around their entire view. The third is the ah millennial view. Or the ah mill, a mill view. Ah or a meaning no. And then mill. No thousand years. It's kind of a misnomer, meaning it's kind of misnamed because all millennialists actually do believe in the 1000 years, but they don't believe it to be literal. They believe it to be symbolic for the entire church age. That is the entire interadvental period, the time between Christ's rising and Christ's return. They believe that that is symbolized by 1,000 years, and it's not literally 1,000 years. They believe that this 1,000 years is speaking of the entire time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. All millennialists, all mills, they might prefer the term inaugurated millennialist. Inaugurated millennialist, because when Christ rose from the dead, he inaugurated the last days, or the symbolic 1,000 years. So they might prefer the term inaugurated millennialist. These verses that are before us this morning and the exegesis that will come thereafter or within is going to argue, my exegesis is going to argue that these verses refer, refer to the course of the church age that temporarily precedes the final judgment, which has been narrated for us in chapters 17 through 19, And also recapitulated for us in chapter 20, verse 7 through 15. What am I saying? I'm saying the millennium is inaugurated at the resurrection of Christ, is what I believe. And it continues throughout the entire church age, is what I believe the scriptures have taught thus far. During this time, I believe, God restrained Satan from deceiving the nations. And that the saints that die actually live. And they actually reign with Christ until their bodies are reunited with their souls. Which means that now that we are three chapters away from the very end. You at least have a clear understanding of what my eschatological position is. If you don't know, then I hold to the all millennial view. The final view. Before um, this this series began... I listened to a number of series, and each of them began with a presentation of post mill, pre mill, and all mill. But as I was preparing for this series, I read a commentary by a man named, a professor named Moses Stewart. And in the opening, he's a a, uh, a seminary professor in the early 1900s. In his seminary, he was um, professor of revelation he warned his students about taking a position on the end times before actually reading the entire book and studying through it. I'm thankful for that wisdom because now that I'm three chapters away, I can say that I have read through the entire book and I have studied the entire book and I believe that the most consistent, I believe, that the most consistent view of the end time is that of the amillennialist The most appropriate, the most biblical is that of the amillennialist Three chapters away, I believe that the 1,000 years is meant to be understood symbolically as the entire church age, the inter-advental period, between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. You don't have to agree with me. But if you have agreed with me up until this point, then you also, whether you know it or not, would find yourself in the category of one who identifies as an amillennialist. That you see the end times or the 1,000 years as being symbolic and not literal. Before, though, we get into these verses, I think it's important that we do not allow ourselves to be consumed with this period of time and really miss what God is intending to communicate to His people about this time. And here's the point. Verses 1 through 6, here's the point. Satan is bound. And saints reign with Christ. We can debate the time period. We can debate that all day long. But if we're missing this point, then we miss the point altogether. Satan is bound... And saints reign with Christ. It's not to say that these other points don't matter. But this matters more. Are you with me? This matters more. Throughout this sermon, I pray that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And a heart that is filled with hope and joy. As you see that Christ has actually bound Satan now. And given the church, you, his people, the right to reign now. And then when you leave this body, the right to reign with Christ eternally with him then until Christ returns. I pray that you are filled with joy this morning, not confusion or fear. With God's help, we have two points this morning for our consideration. Number 1, Satan bound for 1000 years. <clears throat> Satan bound for 1000 years. This is verses 1 through 3. The apostle John sees an angel coming down from heaven holding the key to the abyss and a listen, to this a great chain in his hand. The angel is most likely the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the very first chapter of this apocalyptic book said in Revelation 1:18, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And here's what he says. I have the keys of death and Hades. Not only does the angel hold the key of the abyss, but the angel is also holding a great chain. By which he lays hold of the dragon. If you were raised with this, um, this kind of terminology of Satan is a dog on God's leash, if you were raised with this terminology of Satan is caged, it, it comes from this. It, it does come from, it, it, it may seem inappropriate, but it is in a kind of co- coarse way, it is appropriate, right? This great chain is showing that Christ has taken authority over Satan. There is no angel who possesses such power and therefore the identity of the angel must be the Lord Jesus Christ i'm going to say this a few times and i'll get to what i mean by it by the person and work of christ he has overcome death and reigns over hades the realm of the dead what is more john sees that christ has laid hold of the listen to this word the serpent of old the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan And he has bound him for a thousand years. As we, you well know that, that John is borrowing from all of the, all of scripture. And from this point, he's borrowing from Genesis when the devil presented himself as a dragon or as a serpent, if you will. And our first parents were deceived, violating God's command and breaking covenant. Since the fall, the serpent of old has been both, listen to these, The devil and Satan, or the tempter and the accuser of the brethren. Until the word who assumed our flesh offered his life as a gift of love from the Father. He has offered himself as a ransom for many, so that many sons could be brought to glory. And it is, it was, and it forever shall be, because of the person and work of Christ, that he has hold of the keys of death and Hades. The sting of death is therefore removed because of the resurrection of Christ. Christ has taken hold of the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. This is what I'm going to keep saying, binding him for a thousand years. We're going to get to what binding means. You've heard this before, right? Bind Satan. Yes, okay. Now it's important that we do not forget the rule of interpreting this book. What's the rule, right? This book is a book of symbols. Therefore, it must be interpreted symbolically. You got it. In these three verses alone, look at your Bible. I want you to see these symbols. The angel is symbolic for Christ. The keys are symbolic of authority. Is a symbolism. Uh, the abyss is symbolic of Hades. The great chain is symbolic of Christ's sovereign reign over Satan. That, he, that Satan is only permitted to do or not do so much. The dragon and serpent are both symbolic of the devil, right? One is vicious, one is cunning. They're both the devil and Satan. Saints, virtually everything thus far is meant to be symbolic, and then we come to the second phrase of one thousand years, and then take it literally. All of a sudden, the symbolism is thrown out of the the window for literalism. No. Since, not if, the former things are meant to be symbolic, then the 1,000 years must also be symbolic. Christ has bound Satan. If you were like me, uh, growing up in the tradition that I grew up in, you heard binding Satan a lot. Satan uh, is bound. Um, Satan, I bind you. There was a lot of that kind of terminology growing up when I was young. I I don't know if you're familiar with it, but what does it actually mean? (sighs) The binding of Satan, first of all, is a direct result of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I've said this before. When I'm saying person and work, I'm saying his person being eternal. I'm going to say this slowly. His person being the eternal wisdom and word of God who assumed our flesh. That's his person. Right? He is God in flesh. His work, his life, death, resurrection, descent, ascension, and glorification are his work. Yes? Person, God in flesh, work, the ministry, the whole ministry of Christ. Person and work. It's through the person and work of Christ that Satan is bound. Luke chapter 10, if you want to reference. The disciples are sent out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 72. And then they return with great joy. And here's what they report, sister. They, they report this. Even demons are subject to us, listen to this, in your name. Remember what our Lord says? He gives the disciples insight as to what's happening in heavenly places, in spiritual realms. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay? Okay. Meaning what? Meaning through the person and work of Christ, Satan is being bound. As the, the disciples go out to preach, Satan's kingdom is falling. Satan is, listen to these three words, bound, expelled, and restrained. Bound, expelled, and restrained. We, we could even say like held back from something. This is inaugurated or Or begins at the incarnation of Christ. And it's why Satan so desperately tried to destroy him before he was completely bound, expelled, and restrained. Remember, Herod tried to destroy him through genocide of all infant boys in the region of of Bethlehem. Remember that? But failed. Satan tried to tempt Christ when he was led into, into the wilderness by the Spirit, offering him bread, kingdoms, and then overall questioning his deity, questioning his person and work but fails. Christ then sends his disciples out. Luke 10 send his, sends his disciples out and the binding expulsion and restraint of Satan is in effect. Satan is falling. Christ then tells a parable in Mark chapter 3, another reference that is also often misunderstood. You've heard it before. A strong man being bound. You've heard of that Mark 3? The strong man being bound. It's in the context of our Lord casting out demons. And he's being accused of casting out demons through the power of Satan. He cast out Satan by the power of Satan. And then our Lord, in an almost comical way, you can almost kind of hear him saying, How does Satan, how can Satan cast out Satan? Yeah, you might even imagine the people who are kind of hearing it stand around and go, yeah, he kind of has a point, but that sounds a little weird. Jesus says in Mark 3.24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. Uh, Satan will not work against himself. He, he's insane, but he's not, he's not dumb. Yes? Instead, of, instead, he says, only one stronger than Satan can overcome him. Satan's being cast out because there's someone stronger than Satan. And he shows that he has been overcome when he is bound, when he's tied up. Then he uses this metaphor. It's a beautiful one, if you understand the context. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds or ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. What is our Lord saying? He's saying to those who have ears to hear. He has entered Satan's former house. The world. And those in the world that Satan used to bind with darkness and blindness and deafness and hardness of heart. Christ has come to set them free. He has done that first by binding Satan. Showing. That when image bearers of God are set free from Satan's dominion, Christ is setting captives free. Satan is bound from blinding eyes, deafening ears, hardening hearts of the nations in a comprehensive way from seeing, hearing, and believing in Christ. That's how Satan is bound. You can't say, Satan, I bind you over my finances. Uh, Satan, I bind you over, you know, my back pain that I got when I was running upstairs, right? No, Satan is bound from blinding eyes to seeing Christ. Christ was setting captives free from the bondage of sin and Satan. He's entered the strong man's house, the world, as one who has all power and all authority and has overcome the strong man Binding him in a metaphorical chain, as it were. This is why our Lord says immediately after this this um, example, he says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of sons of men. You're now forgiven of sins. Any blasphemies that you utter, you will be forgiven. I'm setting captives free. There's forgiveness now, Christ says. The devil and Satan, the tempter and accuser, has now been bound. He's no longer permitted to blind the nations and to deceive them into listen to this. We're going to get to even further what it means to conspiring together against the church. He has bound Satan. The prophet Isaiah foretold of a time when nations would be given light. Nations that walk in darkness. Isaiah nine two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. John, the apostle, identifies that light. He says in John 1.4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines where? In the darkness. Thank you, prophet Isaiah, because Christ is the fulfillment of that light. And the darkness could not comprehend it. They, they could not fathom what they were seeing. Christ identifies himself as the light of the world. Who does what? He draws all men to himself. This happens through the binding of Satan. Because of the person and work of Christ, Satan is, I want you to, I'm saying it over and over again. Satan is bound from blinding the eyes of men from the light of Christ. When John the Baptist was questioning whether Jesus Christ was the Christ or or whether or not they should be expecting someone else, what does our Lord say? Go tell John this, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, captives are being set free. How are captives being set free? Well, the stronger man has entered the strong man's house and he's plundered all of his former goods. Darkness, the time of darkness over the nations has come to an end. Light did not come to the nations during the Reformation. That's not when light came to the world. Post-Tenebrak's Luke's, um, uh, after darkness, light. That was only a ray from the true light that came into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was but a ray of light that shines forth, that emanates forth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Satan's binding was climactically and most universally put into motion... Immediately after the resurrection of Christ and his binding last until this day today and will last until just before Christ returns. I'm going to say just before Christ returns. Revelation chapter 20. We'll get to that next week. Chapter 20 verse 7. There there is going to be a, a short period of time. John calls it a short period of time when Satan is released. Light is exposed in darkness. On the day of Pentecost, light was given to the nations. Nations, all men, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those from Cyrene, uh, Rome, Cretans, Arabs, all men now have the light of the gospel. It's available to them. But they can now see and hear and believe. So what does it mean for Satan to be bound when it looks like in Revelation that he's locked away? Now, in Revelation, it looks like he's locked away. And when we look around the world, it seems like he's very much loose. Maybe I should say it that way. It seems like he's very much loose, doesn't it? When one sur- surveys the world, it seems like he's active throughout the world. In fact, here's a few verses for you, for those who want to debate. Uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Our adversary. You know this verse. The devil. What does he do? He doesn't beat against the cage saying, let me out. Peter says that he roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What do you do with that, pastor? Right? Did not Paul say that, that Satan is the God of this world? Doesn't Christ in the book of Revelation warn the seven churches, the Church of Smyrna? Behold, the devil is about to, to come to some of you and uh, to some of you and put you in prison and you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days, or to the Church of Pergamum. I know where you dwell, listen to this, where Satan has his throne. Well, how is Satan bound then? If all of these verses seem to um, at least at, at least uh, say that Satan is not bound but loose, <clears throat> Revelation twenty and verse three specifies in more detail how the devil is is actually under the authority of Christ. John sees in this vision an interesting vision. He's cast into the abyss, and and there is a door over him. So that he should no longer, listen to this, deceive the nations. In a, listen to this now. This is the point. How is he bound? In a unified, comprehensive way. Until the one thousand years are completed. This means that, that, that Satan is not completely unable to deceive. He has allowed you to see, but not in a, listen to this, unified, comprehensive way. He's not able to, he's, it's not to say that he doesn't have influence over nations, of course he does. He's just not able to do it in a complete, comprehensive way. Now, here's what I mean, here's what the scriptures mean. Meaning, gathering the nations from the four corners of the world to oppose and make war against the church. Now, that makes sense. Where are you getting that from? Revelation Revelation uh, 9? The sixth angel called by God to release those who are holding back from the four corners of the world demonic forces. Remember that? There are angels on the four corners of the world, and they are holding back the demonic forces until God says, Now release them. That's what taking that is what is taking place now. There will come a time when they will be released for one final attack from Satan. In Revelation chapter, not only nine, but seven, four angels are standing at the four corners of the world. And what are they holding back? The four winds until they are eventually called to release the, the winds that will wreak havoc on those who are not sealed by God. Those who are sealed of God can't be touched, meaning when they go out to deceive and to oppose, those of you who are in Christ won't be lost. Those, that's encouraging. For those who go, I don't want to read Revelation, it's too scary. No, it's actually encouraging. When that time takes place, you won't be lost. Satan, uh, this binding of Satan saints is a one thousand year or from the time that Christ rose from the dead until Christ returns. It's a restriction upon Satan of blinding the eyes, deafening the ears, hardening the hearts, and then causing all of these to comprehensively oppose and attack the church. You might say, where has that ever happened? Well, think about um, Israel and Egypt. Think about Mordecai and Haman, when Haman devises a plan to destroy the Jews. Think about Israel being taken into captivity by Babylon. All of these have happened. And our scripture is saying, there will come one final time when the church will one last time be opposed in the way that it was opposed in the past. And Satan will lose. He's already lost. Restricted now from deceiving the nations. And the gospel has gone out to the nations. The gospel is right now. It is reaching the four corners of the world. And Satan is not allowed to stop God's people from coming to him. This should be encouraging for us. Because sharing the gospel right now is the time for people to come to Christ. Light has been given to the world. Therefore we should be encouraged to make the gospel known. Not discouraged, saying, oh, well, Satan, Satan is just it. No, Satan is bound now. The gospel is available. Now is the time of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Satan being shut up and sealed gives us the, the idea and the understanding that Christ has authority over him. That's it. This was encouraging for the seven churches. And it's encouraging for the church all time. Listen to this, and I, I'm gonna say it over and over again. Satan is defeated, Christ is victorious. If you get that in Revelation, you get it. He does not have Satan does not have the authority to deceive the people of God. He could afflict our bodies, but he shall not we shall not be destroyed in hell. This is the point. John sees the souls of those who have been de- defeated, or those of those who have been beheaded, I should say because of their testimony of Christ and because of the word of God, because they had not worshipped the beast or his image, they have not received the mark on their head or on their hand, he sees them reigning with Christ in heaven. Satan is right now allowed to deceive. He's he's right now allowed to, but, but he has limits. He is a dog on a chain, if you will. He is restrained in a certain way from doing this comprehensively. But he is allowed to do it. We must not conclude that Satan is not at work. But he is not allowed to deceive in a universal manner. We'll get to that more next week. How long will he be bound? John says for 1,000 years. And it again is symbolic of the entire time between the return of Christ, or the resurrection and the return of Christ. There really is not much more for me to say about that than that. I believe... That all of the numbers, for the most part, in Revelation, they are symbolic. 144,000 is, is a symbolic number. 1,260 days is a symbolic number. Three and a half years is a symbolic number. If you start taking 1,000 years literally, then you've got to take all those other numbers literally, and you end up with more questions than answers. Throughout this time, between the first and second coming of Christ, Satan is allowed to deceive, but he has limits upon what he can do. Until the full number of believers are gathered, Satan can deceive, but not comprehensively. He will seek to exterminate the church, but we have a promise from God about this. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Satan has fallen. Satan will fall. And Christ is victorious. So trust in Christ now, today. Second point, life and reigning with Christ. Second and last point, life and reigning with Christ is verses 4 through 6, shorter point. The Apostle John is given another vision wherein he sees thrones, but does not immediately give the identity of those who are seated upon these thrones. He says simply, and they sat, they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Uh, Those two words. Uh, We don't have to wonder very long about who who the occupants of these thrones are, uh, on these thrones, because John immediately says in the next verse, verse 4, and I saw the souls, there it is, the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, verse 4, And those who had not worshipped the beast and his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hands. Those who are enthroned are those simply this, who have trusted in Christ. In spite of opposition and in spite of persecution from the devil and those who are in league of Satan, they have held fast to Christ. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, John says, I saw underneath the altar what? Souls. Souls of those who have been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which, with, with which they have maintained. The same souls that John sees in Revelation uh, 20 enthroned are the same souls that John sees in Revelation 6 under the altar of God. They are enthroned there. They are safe with Christ there because they have not wavered in their faith. These enthroned ones are those who held to the testimony of Christ. These enthroned ones... Uh, These thrones do not belong exclusively to those who have been beheaded. So don't think, do I I need to get my head chopped off in order for me to be enthroned? No. Uh, They are those who have physically suffered, but they are also those who have held to the testimony of Christ. Uh, Let let me ask you, uh, dear ones, do you believe in Christ? Will you waver from that belief? Uh, Though you might not be persecuted physically. If you hold fast to that belief, then there is a throne for you in heaven. If you hold fast to that belief, then there is a a place of royalty for you in heaven. John says it is for those who have held fast to the testimony of Christ and those who have held to the the Word of God and those who have not taken the mark of the beast upon their head or on their hands. They have not lived with the thoughts or the actions of the world. They have not allowed themselves to be conformed to this world, but rather they are conformed to Christ. There is a reward for you who hold fast to Christ. It is a throne in heaven. Now, this throne is also symbolic, isn't it? Uh, there are not literal literal furniture pieces uh, in heaven that are awaiting you. Instead, you are seated with Christ. You are enthroned with Christ. You are, you, are, you are now enthroned with Christ and you will then be enthroned with Christ. And when you leave this earth, you will be comforted as you reign with Christ. Uh, now, I, I've kind of already assumed that... that I've made the argument I haven't. These thrones, where are they? Oh, I'm only going to say this one time. For the premills, they believe that these thrones are actually on earth. We believe that these thrones are actually in heaven. These thrones will be given to us in heaven, not here on earth. Now think about thrones. How do we know that these thrones are in heaven? The word throne is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. And all 47, except for four of them, they are located, those thrones are located in heaven. The four times, three of them are talking about the throne of Satan on earth. The other time is in Revelation chapter 22 when the throne is from God coming down on earth. All of the other 44, 43, 43 times, the thrones that are spoken of are located in heaven. Therefore, we take what is consistent about this and say, this throne must also therefore be in heaven. In heaven. In heaven. The souls that are enthroned are in heaven and they are seated with Christ. Do you re- remember the, the promise that Christ gave to the church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21? The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You will be seated with Christ and you are presently seated with Christ if you hold fast to Christ. You know Ephesians chapter 2, don't you? Very well. You've heard it said over and over again. We were dead in our sin and trespass. We were children of wrath, but God, Ephesians 2, 4, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And listen to this. And seated us in heavenly places in Christ. If you trust in Christ, you are reigning with Christ now and even then. During this entire period, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but these these are those who have trusted in Christ. They are the faithful. They are sharing in the rule and reign of Christ. They are sharing in the paradise of God. Um, saints of God, where do those who have suffered gone? Where have they gone before the return of Christ? Where are they? Where are those who have held to the testimony of Christ and to the Word of God? Where are they right now? Where is the Apostle John? Right now. He is seated in heavenly places with Christ. Where is Peter and Paul? They are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Where is Augustine and Aquinas? They are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Where is Luther and Calvin? They are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Now, those are giants, aren't they? We think of those as being the giants of the faith. Where is Brother Louis? He is seated in heavenly places with Christ. Where is my dad, Richard? He is seated in heavenly places with Christ. Where is your mom, the one who taught you the faith? She is seated in heavenly places in Christ. Where are the grandmothers, great grandmothers of my of uh, great great grandmothers of my children, Dora and Kukai? Where are they now? They are seated in heavenly places in Christ. It's not just for the so-called giants of the faith. It's for those. For that young pastor who died early, we would call it, who died early, young, and he goes and he is seated with with Christ in heaven. That little one who sat in the front row of of church services and who said amen and and who attentively listened like that little girl is right now, who we believe has true faith. God forbid, but if she did and if he did, where would we believe that they are? Seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are seated now if your faith is in Christ. And if you pass from this world physically to the next world spiritually, we believe that you will be in comfort apart from sin and and, and reigning and seated in heavenly places with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.11, if we die with Him, we will live with Him. If we hold fast, we will reign with Him. Unless we think, again, that we need to wait to reign. You reign now. You reign now. We, We are a part of His kingdom now. Christ is presently ruling in heaven, and he will soon eventually bring all of his enemies once and for all under his feet, bringing the final enemy under his feet, death. Satan is bound for 1,000 years between this time of Christ's uh, resurrection and return. Saints who have passed and saints who are now ruling with Christ and reigning with him until he returns. Those who are in the intermediate state, they are not here, but they are there. They are in comfort and joy and when Christ returns, their souls will be reunited to their bodies and they will live with Christ forever. Revelation 22, 5. John says in verse 4, they have come to life and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. He calls this in verse 5, the first resurrection. This is very simple. I don't want to make this one more difficult than it needs to be. Christ said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, here it is, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, believes in me and shall never die. This is what John calls the first resurrection. It occurs when the soul of the one who trusts in Christ leaves the body. If you trust in Christ now and you die, what will happen to you? You don't say, well, I'm dead. Here's here's the answer. I live. If you trust in Christ now and you die, what will happen to you? Here's the answer, Gabriel. I live. I don't die, I live. For to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul said. John says, it's the first resurrection. It's your first time of experiencing what it means to to die and to be raised. Because you won't die. In a true sense, you have been resurrected. In a true sense, the sting of death, if you've trusted in Christ, is removed Christ has taken away its power. If you've not trusted in Christ, you will not only experience the first death, but John says you will also experience the second death. The one who denies Christ shall know that They will know the sting of death and the second death. The first physical death for the saints who trust in Christ is their first spiritual resurrection, and you will have a second resurrection when your body and soul are reunited. The second resurrection again, Even if the wicked are resurrected, they still only experience death, not life. The one who denies Christ will only know death after death. The one who accepts Christ will only know life after life, life abundantly, life evermore, life to the fullest. How long will this last? One thousand years. What is that time period? It's a time period between Christ, I believe, it's between the time that Christ rose from the dead and just before Christ returns. It's the heavenly counterpart of what's taking place for Satan. That thousand years of him being bound is a thousand years of us being free in the truest sense. And this is why John says at the very end, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of his Christ and will reign and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. It's, it's almost like a final benediction that John gives. We will amen and participate in the judgment of God. We will, as priests, offer worship to God day and night as we are in His presence. The second death has no power over us. Therefore, and, and here's what, what all of us, listen close, every single person who has eyes to see, look at me really quickly. Look, 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 little ones back there, hey, hey, look, listen. If you trust in Christ, you should not fear death. If you trust in Christ, you shall not fear death. John says, the second death has no power over you if you trust in Christ. So if you say, I'm scared to die, dad or mom, if you trust in Christ, you shouldn't be. If you trust in Christ, you won't be. Because you won't die. You will, you will die, but you will experience your first resurrection of being brought back to life because of Christ. See me? You will live. Trust in Christ and you will live. We will amen and rejoice in all of God's judgments. And this is encouraging to the seven churches that John was writing to. They were experiencing opposition. They were experiencing persecution. And John is saying, don't worry. Don't fear. Christ is victorious. Satan is bound. This will be for a short amount of time. But you will live and not die. So don't fear death. Don't be dismayed when opposition and persecution come your way. It's increasing in this country. It's increasing in this country. More and more it seems like it's getting faster and faster in this country especially. There was a a, a rally against a transgender thing that's going to be taking place at the Fox Theater this Christmas. There were Christians there praying that God would move upon those who are gathering to enjoy this event. And just as many people that that were there to pray, there were just as many people there to speak out against those who were praying. In Bakersfield, one of the most um, conservative cities in this entire state, It's increasing. Just before Christ returns, Satan will be released. We'll talk about it next week. But that does not mean you don't have victory. That does not mean that victory is not already yours. That does not mean that you can't already celebrate the life, death, resurrection, not only of Christ, but also of you who are in Christ and your eternal reign with him. We reign with him now. And we should live on this earth as the most blessed people on the face of the earth. And not only that, but we should be vigilant in our sharing of the gospel of Christ because light has been given to the nations. And now and today is the day of salvation. Death has no power over us because of Christ. The keys of death and Hades are in the hands of Christ. Rejoice. Be faithful in your witness. Do not fear death if you've trusted in Christ, for you will live, and you will reign with Him for for, not end, for eternity. To God be the glory. Let us pray.